Okay, today's reading is from John 1, 35 to 51, on page 1063-1063. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, good evening. My name is Nathan, and it is great to be here with you. Keep your Bibles open in front of you. We will be working through them together in a moment. But before we do that, we are going to pray. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here tonight. And as we open your word and meditate on it together now, we pray that we might find life. Amen. Amen. For Christmas last year, my kids got given a whole stack of Where's Wally books. Looks like this. Or this. Who's seen Where's Wally before? Yeah? A whole bunch of you. Good. Who, admit it, who still likes Where's Wally? A lot of you. Wow, don't be embarrassed. All right, don't be embarrassed. I'm embarrassed for you. Now, to be fair, where's Wally? I'm not talking about that Wally. We found him. Uh, To be fair, where's Wally is actually a fantastic parenting tool. Did you know that? Kids will literally sit there for hours poring over the book looking for Wally, not making a noise. It's awesome. 
That's my six-year-old anyway. I thought we might start tonight. Look, we've done a survey, okay? Now, to compensate the fact that we've made you do a survey, I thought we might, it might be cool if we did a game, played a little game, a bit of a challenge. So what I thought we might do is I'm going to show you a picture, and I want to see if you can find Wally, right? Where's Wally? Now, I'm a youth minister, so of course I've got a prize for the person with the good eyesight, all right? The first one to stand up and tell us where Wally is correctly, we'll get the prize. Now, we're going to begin with a practice, okay, to warm up. Are you ready? First one up gets the answer. All right, Pete Welling. Behind the towel that goes like that. Correct. He's sitting down the front. The people at the back are like, I still can't see where he is. That's why we encourage you to sit to the front. Okay, round two. This is, this is for the prize. Okay, now, first one up gets to answer. There may be more than one. Anyone? Where is he? Correct. <laughs> Nick Meeks. How did we let Nick Meeks win? Seriously. My goodness. You hear that sigh, right, that everyone made when the picture came up. Interesting what happens when we finally see the thing that we've been looking for. It's quite obvious there, isn't it? Especially when there is stuff at stake, important stuff like chocolate. Good stuff. I told you it was going to be fun. Now, tonight, tonight we're into the third installment in our series in the Gospel of John. And as we've just read, in this next part of John's narrative, we get to see a whole bunch of different people who finally come to see the very thing that they've been searching for, waiting for. They come face to face with him. And when they do, it is not business as usual. Instead, there's a seismic shift. There's a shift in the message. In fact, it's a new message. And John, the gospel writer, goes to great lengths to make sure that we notice this new message in all its fullness. Secondly, there's a seismic shift that takes place in the ones who see the message. They cannot help but become its new messengers. The new message, the new messengers. Now, if you were with us last week, we spent a bit of time talking about the guy who opens our passage tonight, John the Baptist, there in verse 35. He'd been sent by God to prepare his people to receive his son. And people were flocking from all over the place in order to catch a glimpse of John the Baptist and to hear his message. Do you remember what it was from last week? Make straight the way for the Lord. In other words, God's coming. Now that had been the message for a long time throughout Israel's history. A long, long, long time. He is coming. And that's what the Baptist's message had been, had been, right up until the end of this opening chapter. And all of a sudden, there's a shift in the message. It goes from, get ready, he's coming, to in verse 36, take a look. He says, look, the Lamb of God, he has come. It's a pretty significant shift, isn't it? 
thousands of years of waiting, of hoping, of expectation, that goes from is coming to has come. And what causes this shift for John? It says right there, he sees him. Verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by, John sees Jesus and he knows that's him. That's the guy. That's the Lamb of God. John the Baptist's new message is a man, the word who became flesh to dwell amongst us. Now these first two verses really set up for us a pattern that ripples throughout the rest of this passage. It starts with John the Baptist and then successively after him, a bunch of people come to see Jesus and they call him by a different name. Did you notice that? It jumps off the page at you, really. Across these 17 verses, there are no less than seven different titles to identify Jesus. It's jam-packed. And each one of them comes cascading out of us, one by one by one. What we need to do tonight is kind of take a step back and, and take in the, the, the vista that is laid out for us here and to look at this new message and ask ourselves, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Now, I've already mentioned the first title. John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by. He calls out, look, the Lamb of God. Last Sunday, if you were with us, Richard spoke quite a lot about this title, didn't he? The Lamb being closely tied to the idea of sacrifice and the Jewish Passover. And of course, this title really anticipates the death, the death that Jesus would die a death that served to secure forgiveness for God's people. And so we we encounter this title and it really captures something of Jesus' purpose, what he came here to do. If you're following along, the next thing that happens is we're told two of John's disciples, they hear the Baptist say this and they shoot off immediately in order to track this Jesus down, to find the Lamb of God. You do wonder, don't you, how long they were kind of awkwardly following behind before they caught up to him. You know, sometimes where you kind of sense someone's walking too closely behind you and you just get that, and it's like, what, what's going on here? You know, obviously it got to that awkward point. Jesus stops and says, uh, what, what do you want? These two men see Jesus, verse 38. And what do they say? Rabbi, where are you staying? Rabbi. It was a term of respect, the kind of thing that a student would be expected uh, to say to their teacher. It meant that you were wise if you were a rabbi, you were well studied. Now, I used to be a teacher, and no one ever called me rabbi. I don't know if that says more about me or students these days. But back then, to be a rabbi meant that you were someone who was worth listening to. Someone worth listening to, which is exactly what these two guys do. They follow Jesus back to where he's staying and they end up spending the rest of the day hanging out with him. Now, one of these two guys, Andrew, fresh from spending the day with the Lamb of God, immediately then goes to find his brother, Simon. Bro, we've found the Messiah. Come check him out. And he takes him to see Jesus. That, that's title three, Messiah or Christ in Greek, which just means anointed one, 
anointed one, which is kind of a funny term as well. It means someone who's chosen for a task. In the Old Testament, the people who got anointed typically were prophets and priests and kings, and they'd pour oil on their heads as a, as a sign that they had been chosen by God for a special purpose. But here, if you look closely, Andrew doesn't call Jesus a Messiah. He calls him the Messiah. Because Jesus isn't your ordinary run-of-the-mill anointed one. He's actually the ultimate the long-awaited, promised anointed one who was going to come and restore Israel and save God's people. If that's what Andrew saw. I wonder if that's what you see. We're in verse 43 now, if you're still following. And Jesus moves on the next day and finds a guy called Philip and he calls out to him. He says, hey, buddy, come and follow me. Philip does. And immediately, he goes to find his mate, Nathaniel. Dude, I'm guessing they were close. This is the guy. This is the, this is the one Moses and the prophets spoke about, right? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You can kind of imagine Nathaniel standing there in silence, maybe with a frown. Get out of here, Nazareth? Nah, Nathaniel can't believe what Philip is telling him because this fourth title is just so ordinary. <laughs> it's ordinary. Nathaniel was originally from Cana, if you can see it up there, which is like practically next door to Nazareth, so he would know it pretty well. Nazareth? So you're telling me, Philip, that God's promised one, who we've been waiting thousands of years for, it's just some guy who's working over at that carpentry joint on the outskirts of Nazareth. Joseph's lad, that one. He can't believe it because of how incredible it is. And it is incredible. The word became flesh to dwell amongst us. Jesus was a man with a boring hometown and a daggy dad. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And in that title, that humble title, we are reminded of Jesus' humanity, that he, he became one of us. He laughed, he lived, he cried, he bled. Because he was a man, in every sense, a man just like us. But for one thing, he didn't sin. Three more to go. You hanging in there? Good. Now, I love the way that Philip answers Nathaniel's objection here. What does he say? Come and see. Simple as that. That's all he says because he knows that's all it's going to take. Come and take a look for yourself, Nathaniel, and then you will see. And what happens? Philip's right, isn't he? Nathaniel comes face to face with Jesus and he's blown away. Jesus shows that he knows him even before Nathaniel turns up. Supernatural knowledge. Nathaniel's like, whoa. And in a great twist of irony, the one who couldn't wrap his head around a Nazarene being the promised one ends up being the one who declares Jesus' divinity. Isn't that amazing? Take a look at verse 49. We see what Nathaniel says. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
And in those two titles, it's like Nathaniel's bowing down before his creator and king, pledging his loyalty to Jesus. I can't imagine the kind of emotions that you would go through walking into a conversation, thinking you're just talking to some random dude, to then find out in the middle of the conversation that you're actually speaking to the king of the universe. I, you wouldn't, you'd just stop talking, wouldn't you? The last title is an interesting one. Son of Man. Jesus calls himself that at the very end. And at lots of points throughout the Bible, this is a common term that was often used in a general way to talk about someone who was a human, kind of humanity. But here, Jesus uses it in reference to a vision of ascending and descending angels and it kind of gives this sense of God coming down to meet humanity when when he when he uses it this way son of man actually recalls the apocalyptic vision that we find in the book of Daniel where he says the one like a son of man coming down with the clouds of heaven Jesus is presenting himself here with cosmic authority and as the place where creator meets creation. Wow. There they are, seven different titles spoken by those who saw him. And when we take them together, we lay them out for us, what we see is the full nature of this new message, right? This word which became flesh. The long-promised God-man, the teacher, redeemer, ruler of Israel who would give up his life, shed his own blood in order to make us right with God. And the question for us now is this. Have you seen him? Have you seen him in all his fullness as it's laid out for us here? Maybe you haven't. Or maybe you think you have, but really you're only hanging on to part of the picture, perhaps. Maybe to you, Jesus is just a wise teacher, the rabbi. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. You know, he's got some great one liners about love and peace and giving to the poor, stuff to really live your life by. But the rest of it, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Or maybe you're more into the down-to-earth side of Jesus, of Nazareth, son of Joseph, and you can relate to him, you know, you pour your heart out to him, he's there to feel your pain with you, he's a mate, someone you'd love to sit down and have a coffee with. Maybe it's the son of God, the king of Israel, and for you it's all about obeying and serving, and it really is just about business. Do your best to stay on his good side. Don't make him angry. There's not much by way of a personal relationship. He's just this kind of distant figure sitting on a throne. Or maybe for you, and I'd say this might be more common than you'd think, maybe Jesus just ends up being about forgiveness. You know, he fixes your sin problem. Fantastic. And there's not much more you need, really, than that. So you get the lamb out of the box every time you need it. 
you wave it around a little bit, make yourself feel better about your sin, put it back until next time, rinse and repeat. What is it for you? Have you seen him or are you just hanging on to a part of this picture? The truth is, as we've seen tonight, the new message is all of these things at the same time. He is a man who sympathizes with us and he is the God of our universe who is worthy of nothing less than our worship. He's both. He is our sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world who assures us a blessed future. But also his teaching shows us that he is interested in how we conduct ourselves right now. It's both. The question is, when it comes to you, if you're honest with yourself, which Jesus have you seen? The answer needs to be all of the above. Because anything less leaves us with a misshapen Messiah. A confused Christ. And here's the harsh truth. When we fail to see him in all his fullness, we actually haven't seen him at all. Our final point tonight is going to be much shorter than the first, so don't fear. So far we have focused on Jesus, the new message We're going to just switch our attention now to look at those who truly see Jesus and who, as a result, become the new messengers. Now, the gathering of Jesus' disciples here in the Gospel of John is unlike any of the other accounts we find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In each of those other Gospels, Jesus is the one who goes on the front foot, goes hunting for disciples, calling them to follow him. But here in John's Gospel, we actually get a bit of a different angle. Out of the five disciples we see, only one, Philip, is called by Jesus. And the rest, the other four, come to him on the basis of someone else's witness. It's actually a chain of witnesses. Here's how it plays out. John the Baptist is our first witness. And his testimony ends up leading to his two disciples going off to find Jesus. From John to Andrew and the other disciple. And then Andrew goes off to tell his brother, Simon Peter. Then after Philip gets called by Jesus, he then goes and witnesses to Nathaniel. From three witnesses come four disciples. Interesting, isn't it? And what about that other disciple that we're not really told about, the one with Andrew? What happens to him? Who does he witness to? Well... We're not actually told who he is. The text doesn't tell us for certain. But many people suspect that it may actually be John himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And where is his witness? Right here, open in front of you. It's the Gospel of John. It's the Gospel of John. But these are written, he writes, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's at the end of the gospel, right? Witnessing is the whole reason why John has written this. And we have it right here for us to read. And it's, it's on these pages and the pages of the other gospels that we come to see Jesus. This is where we meet him. These words right here. This is the witness that we've received. And it's these words 
that are able to reveal to us the word. We might not be able to see him in the flesh like the disciples we see here in this passage, but we have him on the pages of God's word. And in those pages, we come face to face with him. What do these guys do when they see Jesus face to face? John tells his disciples. Andrew rushes to find his brother. Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. They become the new messengers of this movement. And it seems like an obvious point to say it when we read a passage like this, but Christianity is a witnessing movement. Did you know that? It's a witnessing movement. That is how it works. That's how it spreads. That's how people are saved, through the witness of others. We see it begin here in John chapter 1. And it's been continuing across the world ever since then. Thousands of years. Just think about that for a second. Everyone here tonight who calls themselves a believer will be able to trace their belief to the witness of another. Who is it for you? A family member? A friend? A co-worker? Someone you met at church? Or maybe, it, maybe it's just being the witness of God's word itself. Witness is at the very center of the Christian faith. Like John and Andrew and Philip, those who come to truly see God's Son become the new messengers of this new message. That is how it works, and that is who we are. The question is, if you have seen him, do you show him? If you have seen him, do you show him? When I think of a Christian witness, the first person who comes to my mind is my grandmother. She's lived right here on Narrabeen Lake, for the last 60 years. She turned 80 last year. And she still paddle boards most mornings. She's with you, Andreas. Maybe you can do it together sometime. So she'll be there as the sun's coming up, out on the lake. And what she does is she'll pray for every person in the homes as she paddles past, probably still in bed. She's out on a paddleboard praying for the people that she passes. No joke. And I mean, she's got it right, doesn't she? Because that is where witnessing starts, doesn't it? With prayer. It's easy to forget, but that is where it starts. Because how else are we, how else are people going to truly see Jesus unless God opens their eyes? You're not going to do it. He's the one that's going to do it. Prayer is where it begins. But my grand doesn't stop there. She follows it up with action. Like, for instance... Uh, every Easter, she'll do some kind of outreach to all the people on her street. One year, she door-knocked all 105 houses in order to hand-deliver a rose with a verse on it. It took her a while, 105 houses, and a lot of money as well. 80 years old. And why did she do it? Not because she is special, but because the one she has seen because of the one she bears witness to, is special. That's why she does it. Who are the people that God's given you to be a witness to? It might not be your street. 
Maybe it's, I don't know, a class at school or a, a tutor at uni. Maybe it's a team at work. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your friends. Who are the ones that are, that are there waiting on you? On you to show them Jesus? That's what we're thinking about. What's stopping you? Sometimes we're reluctant because we expect to be rejected. I know I feel that sometimes. But if we let the fear of rejection stop us, you know what we're doing? We're actually answering for people before we've, we've even spoken to them. How crazy is that? We don't know what they're going to say. We don't know how they're going to react. And actually, the only way you can know is by talking to them, is by asking them, is by showing them Jesus. Only way you'll know. That's the only way that it's ever worked. And it's the way that God will continue to work. Why would you not want to be part of that? Another reason we can be reluctant is because we don't think we'll do it right. I don't know all the answers. What if I stumble? What if I don't know what to say? I might just mess it up, right? And I get that. You know who doesn't get it? Philip. In our passage tonight, what does he do when Nathaniel scoffs at him? Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see. Come and see. That's all he says. Take a look for yourself. Because in the end, it's not about winning an argument. It's not about answering all their questions. It's about come and see. Pointing people to Jesus, which is one of the great things about the word one-to-one material that Richard kind of spoke to us again last week about, and then we're going to have a training session down here about all Word one-to-one is trying to do is give us an opportunity to let people see Jesus. That's what's so brilliant about it, to let them come and see him. I remember when I first saw that I was going to be preaching on this passage, I thought it was a bit, bit of a strange little section. You know, like it's kind of wedged there between the grandeur of the opening prologue And then the start of Jesus' ministry where he turns water into wine. Cool. (laughs) But you know, the more you read this passage, the more you realize that far from being some minor little section, it's actually a pivotal moment because it captures that seismic shift and it's where the witness begins. As we read about it back then, it issues us a real challenge for right now tonight have you seen him do you show him let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your son for your son in his fullness We thank you for John, who wrote his gospel as a witness to us. We thank you for tonight, a chance we've had to receive that witness, to gaze on the grandeur of your son and all the things that he is and all the things that he came to do. Lord, we pray that we might have seen him tonight in your word. We pray for those of us who have seen him, that we would become new messengers, that we would be bold and courageous to take forth your son and to show him to the people of this world who desperately need to see it.
Amen.